everyone, and welcome back to Gated. This is episode five, and episode two in our series sponsored by Protect Our Winners that we have going this summer, where I'll be speaking with Alliance members from creatives, scientists, and athletes to kind of figure out how we all use creativity in our life and do different things to care about our environment. I'm really excited to welcome Len Nessifer to the show today. Len is a lot of things. First, he is the creator of the Sonoran Avalanche Center meme account on Instagram. If you do not follow that, please go and follow it right now. He is hilarious and has a great way of poking fun at the outdoor industry and also bringing light to some more serious climate issues, but with humor, which we all need and we love. He is also the creator of Natives Outdoors, which is a native-led powerhouse of film, photo, consulting, creative. He's done some incredible work through that since 2017. And we chit-chat about this, that, and did you know that he has a PhD? Because uh, you should know that. Len's also smart. He's got his hands and name on so many different things. But I don't want to take up any more of your time. Just go ahead and listen. So let's start the show. At Protect Our Winners, we're committed to helping passionate outdoors people protect the places and experiences they love from climate change. We're a collective of outdoor athletes, scientists, creatives, and brands committed to driving systematic policy changes towards a clean energy future. We continue to strengthen, diversify, and grow our reach with the outdoor state implement new and existing climate policy and engage with new geographies, alliance members, and perspectives. Want to get involved? Head to www.team-pow.org to join the team. It's the answer to your question, what can I do about climate change? Together, we can protect our winters. All right, and we're live. So we're going to start by introducing yourself, who you are, and what do you do? Oh, man. I Emily, in the conversation beforehand, I got all confused. I don't even know what I do. <laughs> uh, I do a lot of things. Um, I'm the owner, uh, CEO, and founder of Natives Outdoors. Uh, we're a create, we're a creative and athletic creative is like what we call ourselves, and um, that's filmmaking, consulting, and we kind of work in the outdoor world and in conservation. Um, I'm also the chief facet officer of the Sonoran Avalanche Center, uh, which we'll, we'll talk about what that is, I'm sure, a little bit later. Uh, board member for the Honnold Foundation. Yeah, I do a lot of things, but uh, mainly trying to pay for my expensive hobbies outside and spending time outdoors is my big focus. (laughs) Cool. I think we all try to do that as much as we are, as much as we try in the outdoor industry. Um, And as usual, I pair every episode with um, your favorite beverage. So what are we, what are we pairing this with today? Oh man, it'll have to be, uh, it's my sponsor plugs, fat tire, fatty daddy as I like to call them. Uh, carbon carbon neutral beer and also of course tin cup with for the like i like to call it the boiler maker a beer and a shot oh okay oh man i wasn't expecting that um 
I don't know the last <laughs> time that I did that. There's this bar in Reno where we used to get, there was like this crazy $5 deal where it was a rolling rock, a shot and a burger for five bucks. And it was so good. But, um, I haven't done one in quite a few years because warm tequila kind of killed me. Warm tequila and warm whiskey, but. <laughs> That'll get you. <laughs> That'll get you. Um, but awesome. I mean, I love the sponsor plug. We love Fat Tire. We love Tin Cup. So, yeah, that's good. I was drinking a lot of old fashions this weekend at a wedding. So Tin Cup with some old fashioned sounds really good. Yeah, those are really good. It's really good for that, for sure. Well, so like you said, you kind of have your hands in a million different things. So it's no wonder that you're a part of the Protect Our Winners uh, Alliance membership because your hands are in like the outdoors and environment kind of everywhere. How did that passion start with you? Were you always a big outdoor kid? Like where did you grow up too, I guess? Oh, man. Well, I mean, I... So a context of how I got involved with Protect Our Winners is I uh, made some snarky post on Twitter about uh, does does my new Toyota Tacoma, it didn't come with a POW sticker. Does it grow naturally or is it something that I have to get from the dealer? And and uh, Mario Molina, the <laughs> director AED of Protect Our Winners commented and, you know, I, it was kind of this snarky jab at like, you know, everyone in Colorado and their Tacoma has a, has a protector winners sticker. Yep. Um, but, uh, yeah, in large part, it was like, you know, but it's also kind of the, the challenge that POW has been figuring out is like, how do we, how do they evolve as an advocacy organization and continue to do more? And I kind of got, I had a really awkward conversation with Mario after that, but you know, it's like, I was on the same page uh, for sure about like what Powell's work was doing. And so I've been working with Powell a lot more and um, doing stuff with voter outreach and all of that. But yeah, how I got here, how I got to <laughs> making snarky comments uh, to Powell on the internet. Uh, yeah. It's a, it was kind of an interesting road. I grew up in, um, I grew up in Lawrence, Kansas uh, and which is like Eastern Kansas, big bike community. Um, my parents met at a tribal college there and, and, and I, yeah, just like wasn't really near a lot of public lands in Kansas, but every summer I go out to the Navajo nation and spend time with my mom's side of the family and spent a lot of time outdoors there, just herding sheep and doing kind of odd stuff outdoors. And, um, but yeah, I really, I, I never, uh, did a whole lot of outdoor sports until I got older. Like I learned, I knew how to ride a bike. And then once I got to college, I figured out that like mountain bikes can be really cool and be a big money sink. And so I spent yeah. a lot of money uh, at bike shops and started doing that. I started learning to backpack and doing all kinds of other things. But really it just began, um, I, I moved, I was, yeah, sort of through all that, like my life trajectory was really guided by education. So I went to college in Kansas, back where I grew up, um, big bike community. And then I eventually uh, went to graduate school in Pennsylvania um, and did a little rock climbing there, a little biking and uh, moved to DC, did that there. And then, but really like um, changed that as I moved to Colorado and, you know, it was everyone was doing the things that I thought were pretty cool. And I didn't, um, you know, I ran and biked pretty frequently, but never climbed, 
never skied. Um, and so I taught myself to ski when I was like 28, uh, 29, uh, which was <laughs> horrendous, yeah. uh, but, uh, uh, good mentorship. And then like learned to climb pretty soon after that. And just sort of, you know, the skills started building. And so like the past few years I've been learning how to like pack raft and do like more technical river stuff. And yeah, but it just, you know, really it was just, it was, it's just different ways of being outside. And I'm kind of, I enjoy being a generalist. I like kind of like doing everything. Um, because I find that the communities, the outdoor communities are really different, really neat. And, um, you know, it's just, it, it's kind of like learning to speak different languages and you get to speak to kind of different people in the process. And I've really enjoyed that. And so along the way, I started uh, finding a lot of humor in those communities and how insular they can be. And I started making fun of them. And that's how I eventually connected to Pow. <laughs> because you are, yeah, it naturally hilarious and I've spent some time around you and that's been like really fun to get to know more about your personality but yeah your meme capabilities are pretty impressive um the snore and avalanche center is one of my favorite accounts on social media I'm constantly reposting what you have posted and it's funny because I feel like sometimes people think that creating memes is a really easy, but I think it's insanely hard and how you like constantly stay up on stuff, especially in the outdoor community. Like how, where, <laughs> where does the inspiration yeah. come? Like, how do you do that? I guess because you've spent so much time in these communities, but it's really hard to make fun yeah. of ourselves. Yeah. Well, kind I don't of, have I guess. A, yeah, totally. I mean, it comes from two ways. Like, I, so I kind of glossed over like my education and what I've done, but like, I, you know, I have a doctorate and like I worked in DC and did all that stuff, but I felt incredibly constrained in those environments. They're really like, you know, professional culture is what it is and it's really toxic. <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah. Um, and you know, so much about that world is like maintaining your image and like, adhering to these professional norms that means that you know it's like a lot of self-censoring and like not actually saying what you want to say i mean basically like just imagine if linkedin was your entire reality right like you're just <laughs> speaking in platitudes like it got really constraining for a while and you know you know i kind of learned that as a native person working in those spaces i just often had to bite my tongue i couldn't say what i actually thought and so I left that job and, and like also working in academia after that, I just like, I left those jobs and it was almost this unshackling where it's like, I can actually say what I think on the internet right now. And I'm not going to have some weird conversation with the Dean. Um, and making like, I had a conversation with our department head because when I was a professor, I posted like some ridiculous meme about making fun of zoom online classes. And it was just making fun of it, right? Yeah. And that, like, I had I had students like putting really absurd names. So, like, in our Zencaster right now, my name's Bob, which yep. I just realized um, reminded me of like the kids that were putting their names as something obscene and ridiculous. I put that into a meme, then had a conversation about how it was demoralizing students and 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 like the, my other colleagues. And I'm like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> like. We're having a conversation about this because someone was triggered by like, this is dumb. So anyways, when I left that, you know, I, I basically humor, you know, in native communities, like 
is a tool that we use to break tension and to talk about serious issues. And in the professional spaces that I was in, like humor is something that you never really introduce. It's like something that never is like kind of tab. It is taboo um, to, you know, laugh about things or laugh about the serious stuff, you know, just, just laughing. It's just like, not, it's not something that is a part of that world. And, you know, in a, in working in the outdoor world, I just realized like, it's kind of, um, a sim, I want to say similar. It's just like, I would say the broader us culture, it's like humor is something that's there, but it's not like a central part of serious discussions. It's kind of like this side rail. And I really thought, you know, here's an opportunity to use humor to talk about serious stuff. I mean, it was largely during the pandemic that I started curating memes and baking a bunch of connections with outdoor meme accounts. And I started this, this Sonoran Avalanche Center in sort of light of that, because it was really, you know, we had this dual thing of the pandemic. And then also just like here in Tucson, 2020 was really chaotic with climate stuff. We had a huge fire and it was like, the first first year in recorded history that we had a hundred days over a hundred degrees, it was just miserable. Yeah, and and you know, it's like reading the headlines is not helpful in that situation. It no. just like it just it just causes your anxiety to spin out of control. And so I I basically said I have a tool that was like gifted to me by my culture that is like we can have the darkest humor. Uh, and laugh in the most fucked up situations because we've been through worse and like humor <laughs> got us through. And so yeah. I, um, I really leaned into that and said, you know, this is something that I can contribute to the world around me. And so, yeah, I started sharing memes on the internet. I like my social following exploded, relatively speaking. I'm like the mayor of a small town in New Mexico right now. Um, what? <laughs> my social with this, my so the size of my social. Oh following yeah. Okay. Got it. I was like, no, 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 no. Back up. <laughs> <laughs> but you know it was it was really the sonoran avalanche center came out of this what i was seeing with climate messaging it's like it's doom and gloom or it's telling people that they need to do you know like telling people to eat their vegetables so to speak, yeah about like personal responsibility around climate action it's like yeah throw that you know just like people are scrolling past that not paying attention they care about it but it's not really landing yep. and it's like how do we break this mold and so what was born out of that was the Sonoran Avalanche Center. And really that was like, I don't know, like three beers after backcountry skiing on Mount Lemon. And they were like, who's the Avalanche Center? And it's like, I guess we are. Uh, and so we started as a joke. I mean, really, it was just like, let's just start this joke. It's really funny. Uh, and and then slowly we started, start, like it started taking off in a way that we never expected. And really it was just, it's chaotic. It's just the most insane thing that I've ever done, but it's also something that like in the shackles of my previous professional life, I could never like disclose, like if I was to continue doing that job, those jobs, I could never disclose that I would be behind the Snort Avalanche Center right. or suicide. Um, and so what, through the process of building that account, you know, a lot of it was, um, uh, we, we built connections with a lot of other outdoor focused meme accounts. And so we have a very, uh, raucous group chat <laughs> that is a bunch of people that are sort of masquerading behind the their meme accounts and so there's no i, I know who most of them are yeah um, now but, yeah but you know it's funny because a lot of them still work and live in like professional worlds and so they actually have to hide their identities but it's been this interesting thing it was like wow if you build this collective humor machine it can lead to really cool things and so the um 
the funny conversation that I had with Mario Molina after making fun of Pow on Twitter was we, we applied for a, a grant uh, as a Sonoran Avalanche Center to do get out the vote work. And I think I think he was we, we got recommended to be funded and basically just said, hey, we're going to make really chaotic get out the vote content that's going to break Pow's, Pow's mold. And he kind of called I, I, he might he might. He, he framed it as like getting to know each other better, but I think he was trying to get a sense if like what we like what were we gonna do? I think there was a little bit of like resonance of that. Yeah. And you know, I remember on that call, it's like, dude, like we already have, you know, the evil pow. It's like protect our summers. Uh, which if you spell out the acronym, it's like piece of shit. Uh I don't know how funny he's anyways, but but that led to that kind of prove the test case about the power of humor and like, how do we navigate these challenging times around talking about voting, talking about climate messaging in ways that are like compelling. And we were able to prove that in our last time. So humor inadvertently became a part of the business and work that I do now, but um, <laughs> it's fun. I mean, the people are fun. I don't know how long the runway is for it, but it, you know, it's going somewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's super fun. I'm I'm constantly entertained by it. And it also gave me information because I know where Mount Lemon is. And we have a friend who's moving to the Tucson area for medical school right now. And I was like, oh man, like Curtis, the backcountry skiing there is insane. <laughs> like you have to keep an eye on the reports. Like the facets are are wild out there, but like really good information. And he was like, oh, really? And then he checked it out and he was like, wait, what is this? <laughs> like, yeah. And he's like, but like, really though, do people backcountry ski at Mount Lemon? I was like, absolutely. I know a guy that's out there all the time. He gets some super sick shredding in. You know, what's really, I think the moment of clarity for me of like my mind exploded is when I learned that Mount Lemon is the same distance from the Sea of Cortez as the Sierras from the Pacific. It's 160 ish miles. And, and, and we have a, maritime-ish snowpack here um really dense heavy snow yeah so i don't know <laughs> it's the same i mean i've heard that it's epic i've seen it there's like really cool burn zones um we might have to fly down there and get some turns in in the next four years with him because yeah it was just i just loved that he was like i don't know i've never even been down there before and i was like the only thing i know about that area is mount lemon <laughs> So thank you, because you educated me on something other than just like the facets or, you know, a construct of veil and that humor is really important in talking about environmental issues, which is all those other right. things, too. But yeah, um, we got to we got to slow down and kind of give context for that, that the, the, or, the origins of facets. Uh, yeah, I mean, the the. Uh, so yeah, for, I'm sure the listeners won't, maybe some will know, some will, won't, but we, we created, uh, so the Snorin Avalanche Center is a for-profit avalanche center based in Tucson, Arizona. And we specialize in non-snow avalanches because the snow stopped falling, but this past year was not true. Like we had a lot of snow, <laughs> uh, um, but really on the humor side, it was, it was this whole question of like, how do we how do we even begin to engage with climate conspiracy nonsense? You know, there's a yep. lot of wild shit on the internet of people believing whatever about climate. And, and the only thing that I honestly could come to is like, you have to be crazier than the crazies. 
And so we just started peddling our own conspiracies. And one of them is there's a town uh, about 10 minute or 10 miles outside of Tucson called Vail, Arizona. And we said, Oh, perfect. Uh, and, 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 you know, we have a big rivalry, rivalry with Vail, but we think that like basically facets are manufactured. Like, you know, if you've ever seen snow making on the resorts, like they're making facets, like hands down, like that's what's happening. But now imagine this happening in the backcountry. Like, you know, if you think about avalanche instabilities, like facets, you know, and instabilities and avalanches will drive more people to ski in resorts, which, you know, is all profit driven. Um, makes sense on the surface. Yeah. I, it doesn't have, in, it, the conspiracy doesn't have internal consistency. Like I, I mix, I make an ad or subtract things every time I sell it. <laughs> which I think is like part, it's part of the conspiracy. It has to be incoherent to a degree. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I would say anything from the last two seasons in Tahoe where we normally don't have any facets. For some reason, facets have been reoccurring on a regular basis in our snowpack in the backcountry, And it has led me to riding in the resort more often. And I've been very curious about that because all of a sudden I'm there and I'm drinking a Bloody Mary and it's 11 o'clock where I could have been out in the backcountry, but I couldn't like, is this cloud seeding? Like what's happening? Facets. Yeah, I know. That's, that's what we're looking into, you know? So <laughs> yes, it's an ongoing investigation. There's still, yeah, no, yes or no, no there, but <laughs> you know, we just have to keep looking into it. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. I mean, it's, I don't know why the Sonoran Avalanche Center, well, I know why it's successful, but it just still baffles me. But basically like um, the trick to having success and stuff is having thing like with something like that is for it to be familiar, but novel. Yeah. So everyone knows what an Avalanche Center is, but they've never seen an Avalanche Center that's just unhinged. (laughs) (laughs) So Yep. Uh, if you're looking for success in life, that's that's the that's what I found in the last years of my life. <laughs> You've been doing a great job with it. It's been yeah, it's been wildly successful, and it's just fun to always like. Yeah, I look forward to the posts every day. It's great. I can't wait to see what you come up with next. <laughs> what next conspiracy we can think of? Um, but not to like totally shift doors, but I do want to step into another part of like creative that you do, which is native outdoors or natives outdoors. Mm-hmm. Is it with uh, the natives, S? Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so talk, like talk a little bit about that and then tell me kind of how that also came to be. Yeah. So, uh, that's why. Uh, I'm not gainfully employed in a salary job anymore. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, when I moved to Colorado, I was working with the U.S. Department of Energy and great work. Um, I was at the time, you know, under the Obama administration, I was going to Alaska a lot and spending a lot of time in Alaska Native villages. And um, I, those those trips were just so life changing because a lot of those communities are still living, you know, with many of the life ways that they've lived for thousands of years, and it's in our, you know, in our country. And I spent a lot of time with those communities and and it was really, I took away a lot and then Trump got elected. Um, and when you're a lowly contractor in the DOE, you basically have to take orders. And, you know, it was, it was really crazy, uh, time in DOE with the 
political appointee, the political appointee that got to our office and then um, the other policies. And so I just was looking for the door and I had started Natives Outdoors in 2017, um, kind of as a social media account to uh, really just build community of Native folks that were doing outdoor rec, um, because I just really didn't see a lot of representation there. which, you know, it's like kind of, it was the zeitgeist of the time. It was like, how do we get more representation in this? And, um, you know, and I, I just was really not seeing that represented on the native side very well. And so we started that as a social media account. And then um, uh, I left my job in 2017 and then went and tried to start native, Natives Outdoors full time in 2018. Um, so I took six months off to get it, you know, really begin putting in the time, putting in the work and um we evolved we were originally we were trying to start and do product and sell merch and you okay. know sell outdoor clothing and that sort of thing um we quickly learned that you need millions of dollars in order to be successful in doing that um and so we shifted and we were looking at what was possible and and what we really saw is like um the opportunity to change the cultural perception around indigenous peoples in the outdoors we really saw through media um, through written visual storytelling. And, um, over the next year and a half, we began assembling a team. I took a job at, as a professor during this time, cause I had to pay the bills and, um, I know how that goes. Over that, yeah. Over the course of like three years, 2018 to 2021, um, we began building a team to do media storytelling and doing, I was doing a bunch of my own sort of adventure storytelling, um, we made a film called Welcome to Guichage and and then began working on a film called Spirit of the Peaks that we was one of the folks that we worked with. The previous film was that was the company we worked with. And um, as you're well aware, the cost of camera equipment is really high. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we kind of saw that as, you know, our in order to get more indigenous peoples into the outdoors and doing in the outdoor industry specifically, we said we have to create the visual imagery to support it and normalize it in our communities first, and then also sort of carve the space out in the outdoor world as well. And so we invested in that camera as those cameras, <laughs> and, um, all that equipment. And uh, what swung that was um, in 2021, I was like, it was like kind of the middle of COVID. I was like getting sick of my professor job. It was just, it was a miserable job. Uh, it was it was not the best job before COVID, and then COVID just really just turned it into a miserable thing. And uh, I was looking for the door, and we uh, had made enough sort of content already that we got approached by um, the media agency that represents Visit Idaho, and they're like, "Hey, we're looking for a native production company to make uh, this tourism campaign of tribes in Idaho uh, with the state," and we don't know of anyone. And I, we, we got heard your name through the grapevine that you guys do this work. And we're like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> like, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I've never done it before. And all the people that I work with have done bits and pieces of it, but we'll figure it out. I didn't say that. I just said, yeah, yeah, we can do it. And we did. Um, um, and that, that basically allowed me to uh, have the pay I needed to leave that job. And then um, basically pursue what I'm doing full-time now. And so what we do now is we do, um, we do a lot of brand consulting. So, you know, one of the things that we've been addressing is, 
um, cultural appropriation in the outdoor industry because it's it's a you know basically cultural appropriation is the use of designs cultural artifacts of marginalized communities and <laughs> Navajo rug designs and indigenous designs are very popular uh, and have been. And so we said, there's an opportunity here, you know, basically for brands, this is a liability, a PR liability. Um, if that's how they're thinking about it, it's also just, it's just not the way in which business should be done. And so what we've been doing for the past few years is working with companies to address prior appropriation if that's something that they want to do, um, but also um, building uh, relationships with indigenous artists, giving them opportunities to put their designs or artwork onto other mediums. And then also the biggest piece back to the media side of things is ensuring that those designs don't lose their story right. when they're shared to the broader world. Because the heart, the biggest thing about cultural appropriation that's so damaging is yeah, it's lost revenue and whatever, but native folks are really just losing more of their culture and like kind of being erased from the process. And for us, you know, it's like we could have gone down the path of just calling companies out and like saying that this is a problem. But what we really wanted to do is provide a solution and said, people want these designs. You know, right now we, we, we've made the deliberate decision not to do products ourselves because it's incredibly expensive and you know, these companies are better positioned to do this. And how about we build a relationship with them that the artist benefits and the native crew that we hire to tell these stories is benefiting as well. And these companies can sell these products at a higher premium because people want them and they love stories and they love feel good products. And so we've done a bit of that. Um, and that's been really good. And then, you know, the others commercial work um, on different things and that's, stuff that pays bills, honestly. And some of it, you know, some of it's been really good. Some of it's been soul sucking, but I think the bigger thing on our end is like, we're just trying to build opportunities for native folks to work in the outdoor industry, outdoor media, um, as photographers, as ACs, you know, whatever, um, sort of on the entire media side. And, um, you know, for us, that's kind of been the, the pathway and, yeah. And then that's, that's been a huge part of it. And then, yeah, consulting, I mean, I could go into the other kinds of consulting we do, but, um, but really it's, it's been a lot of our success has just been building the right team. And we just have really talented folks and, um, it's been really cool just to see how our team members have grown, how I've grown. Like I didn't know how to run a business, but you know, yeah. just seeing that native owned businesses can be run and aren't going to fail. We're still open. <laughs> We're still alive after seven years. Hell yeah. <clears throat> well, cause I was going to ask if you had any background in business because I mean, that's definitely just as myself going, like leaving my job and going into full-time freelance. I didn't have much experience. I'd taken like one course in college and it was like terrifying, but to just like make mistakes and be like, oh shit. All right. Well, I won't do that again. Like, let's go down this different endeavor. Like how, yeah. Has there been just like a massive learning curve or were you able to bring in some people that had a little bit more experience in that, that like helped level out some of that beginning or has it just been the like, mm -hmm. um, I'm trained as an engineer and I dealt with budgets when I was in the government. Okay. So like, the business side of budgets, like I know how to build a spreadsheet and I actually like it, <laughs> which <laughs> I know how to build husband, systems. Both. Obsessed. <laughs> Obsessed. 
I, I love it. And it's like something I enjoy doing. And I also enjoy for myself, I enjoy learning new things. And so like, you know, part of what I've had to learn is like how to operate a camera, like a still camera, how to operate the same, you know, maybe the same camera, a different camera and like taking video, which is an entire different thing. Um, so really, but like, that's just kind of where I've had to just learn. So it just was, you know, kind of going back to learning how to ski, you know, I, it, it was uncomfortable. It's an, it's, it's really uncomfortable and not, you know, especially as we get older, um, there's a lot of barriers, mental barriers that we create. Um, but I think for me, I just kind of approached it as here's an opportunity where I'm going to feel really uncomfortable, but I do know that sort of point at which you, you do feel competent and it feels good. You know, it's just kind of that, like knowing that learning curve and that it's not going to be, um, stagnant for that long. So that's kind of how I approach it. And so as we have new things come up in our business, it's like, there's opportunities to learn. Um, and so that's kind of how I've approached the business side of things. And then in terms of the team building, um, you know, we, we have like 16 folks that we work with on a project basis and, um, kind of tap people in depending on their availability or whatever to, um, work on different things. And, and that's, and, and really, you know, it's, I've had to do a lot of learning on like, how do you build a cohesive team and a, uh, and a, a company culture that, um, people feel like they can use as a platform and that's taken work and we still have work to, I mean, culture is something that is like, it's like a garden. It needs to be tended and um, it, it's not fixed. It can change. And so it's a constant kind of thinking about how do we move forward together. And um, but I think really like uh, I, I think for myself is just trying to have that understanding of like, what am I, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses and what's not being filled in the organization? And so I really started looking at, okay, these people can bring these skill sets and like we can work in these ways and like, how do we work together in a way that's productive and that's taken work. Um, but the team that we have now is really phenomenal and really talented. And, you know, we're, we, yeah, we, <laughs> we started raking in awards for our like kind of crazy corporate commercial work, which is re weird. Hell um, Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, it was cool. It's just like, whoa, like, uh, you know, our first commercial, like the Visa Idaho thing has won a bunch of awards in the travel tourism space. And it was like, wow, I guess that, I don't know. I mean, that came from like a variety of factors is again, it was familiar, but novel. Yeah. Um, And, and we just also had some really talented folks working on it. And really, I was just kind of being the orchestra conductor of managing spreadsheets and booking hotels and being the producer, which someone needs to do that. And if I can take that off of the creative plates, that's kind of my thing. So, yeah, but also because um, producing is insanely hard because it is booking like hotel rooms, but it's, yeah, it's like keeping everybody on track and making sure that like deadlines are getting hit and like you have your, like, you know, your zones that you're going to, I don't know. I've like, my sister used to um, produce for an Idaho based company when she was living in Boise and I've done some producing off and on. And part of me loves being in control like that, but it is really hard. And you're right. Like coming back to building a good team and finding people around you that fill the gaps in like mm -hmm. what you know you're good at and what you know other people can provide for you. That is so 
critical. And I think a lot of times as a creative, sometimes you feel like you're out here alone, but you don't necessarily have to. And it is mm -hmm. really important to like take other people, utilize their skills and like work as a team. It's so much more fun. It's so much more fulfilling and successful. Yeah. And just, yeah, I, I think just to like having those relationships of like working on a cool project with folks is really fun. Um, yeah. It's like group projects from high school or whatever, just like at a, a, a larger scale and a lot more money. Involved. And like most <laughs> of your team is actually motivated to do it. There's generally not one person doing all the work, but mm -hmm. at least that was mm -hmm. most of my high school teams. Um, but what's, what's one of your favorite, you, you were bringing up the visit Idaho, but I saw you did a really cool collab, um, with, uh, Weston and was it with Smartwool? Mm -hmm. with some of like the product design stuff like tell me about that is that was that like one of your most recent projects yeah that's the one that we yeah we worked on so the the we, we were approached by weston backcountry that makes split boards and skis out of colorado and um their marketing director was you know said hey we you know back a couple of years ago we had culturally appropriated some language and designs and we, this wasn't the proudest sort of product and story that they put out, but they're like, we want to do something with you guys. And um, we uh, worked with them and Smartwill on creating a paired sock and ski that portions of the proceeds of the sales of those would go to support the National Forest Foundation. Um, and there was a program that they're called, uh, I forgot what it was called, um, but basically it was like providing fuel wood, uh, firewood to elders on the Navajo Nation from like um, uh, forest thinning work to, you know, basically clear out a bunch of dead timber. Um, really cool project. And and so we, one of our, our main designer, Vernon Key, talented Navajo designer, like uh, came up with a couple designs, uh, socks and, and the snowboard and and part of the story that we ended up telling in in sort of that in supporting the companies with marketing of the product um we created the short vignette of vernon and like um yeah just told the story of vernon and all the things that he does through his hands because he's a he draws <clears throat> as his main medium but he also works in digital stuff as well and so kind of telling you know his story about being a marine and like having spent time in afghanistan and now he's rescuing dogs on the navajo nation <clears throat> you know kind of the multitude of hats that he wears and, and telling that story and that was really that was really great and it was really great to work with those companies and they're doing some cool stuff and i think weston this year has worked with another uh native design company uh called trickster and they made a bunch of really cool designs and so you know for us it was just you know just having more native folks in the outdoor industry is great like i think just that building of bridges between those communities is huge um yeah absolutely i didn't mention this i didn't mention this before but when we started natives outdoors it was right in the midst of the run-up to the bears years monument designation back in 2017 <clears throat> and um we um we started Natives Outdoors. I got connected with the the director of the uh, Colorado Office of Outdoor Rec, who is Luis Benitez at the time. Um, and he's like, we need more Native folks in the industry because what, what they were seeing is like the Bears Ears National Monument's like this huge monument, Southeast Utah. It's like the largest monument designated, but it's also tribe. It was a tribally led effort and it's a tribally co-managed site, which is the largest of its kind. 
but um that didn't that only happened because the tribes built relationships with groups outside of native communities and so this was the outdoor rec community conservation etc and what luis was saying is like there wasn't he's like he just said you guys came at the right time because there was not the representation of native folks on the industry side of the equation right and and so you know really what we saw kind of in that time was um there was a lot of shared values over the protection of bears ears between the out broader outdoor rec community and tribes but there was also a lot of challenges like there's like historically tribes in the outdoor rec community haven't always gotten along um and there's a lot of things that can derail that relationship as well so we saw that coalescing around bears ears but you know things about like cultural appropriation erode that relationship you know disputes over land use and land management erode that relationship and really what we saw is like if there's ways that we can continue to build connections across native communities that's how we do it and so that's where the design work and like working with more native talent on the media side is really like at the goal if we can um yeah, continue to um, build those relationships is key. Yeah, absolutely. Especially I, I know, and you know this too, when it comes to skiing and like winter sports industry, like land use, et cetera, is like a major issue with tribal communities and areas. I know that there is a big thing when I was living at Mount Hood or Y East um, with Ski Bowl, finally allowing um, like huckleberry picking for um, the Warm Springs Reservation, which was like a really big deal. But I did a um, project about some of those issues, especially with like sacred um, sacred spaces with like land use and natives. And then like when it comes to the outdoor industry and just like, I, I guess, yeah, educa educating people about it. Like, do you find that a lot of what you do still with like natives outdoors is in an educational space working with brands or has it kind of are in 2023, are we, mush are we pushing a little bit past education and into like a, a better system, I guess? Yeah. Oh, uh, I mean, I just, we we've all include native people included have received a terrible education about native people in this country yeah um and you know when we spend time outdoors we get to tap into some of those stories in history like that's but not everyone sees it that way and you know there's that <laughs> that is what it is but um you know there's there's um of course education that needs to continue i think for me it's gotten a little tiring of I think like, cause a lot of the education that we have to do like around indigenous issues is always talking about things in the past. And I think sometimes, you know, in the amount of talking that you have to do to get to talking about the present in like contextualizing why things are the way are they are now takes so much work given that, that the baseline of education that we get is so low in yep. this country. Yeah. And I think what I've tried to shift on doing is not so much focus in the the details of things there of the past, but um, trying to figure out how do we bring the past into the contemporary, into stories that are relevant now and of like maybe giving bits and pieces. So like talking about the Colorado river and like uh, tribal water rights and why the way that they are and like why that matters. And um, it's been, you know, an angle that I've been taking a lot recently and um, you know, really it's, 
for us, it's just our, our, our reasoning of being in business is just to employ native folks, like really how we do that and how that happens does matter to a degree. Like we're not going to go work for like Chevron or something, but, um, um, but you know, things that like kind of continue to, um, yeah, just empower native folks because, you know, honestly, it's like, because of colonization and all these facts, like, you know, we don't have resources in our community. There's so few native run businesses. There's so few, you know, talent and all these across the board, not to mention that there's not many of us because of genocide. <laughs> like, like, let's be real. Yeah, uh, there's that. That would, you know, if we had more people, there might be more filmmakers and like, anyways, that's a whole different conversation. But uh, you know, but that the thing is, is that like, really, it's like, how do we build that foothold in those those handholds so that like, you know, the people that come after us can like, have it a little easier in starting a business or like employing their own people to do these things. Like, really, that's like, the runway that I want to take. And so we've been taking a lot of jobs that kind of fill those out in different ways of, you know, brand brand work and when we get burnt out on the brand work, we try to do something fun that's a little, you know, more more fulfilling. And we've been working on one one of the examples is that we've been working on a um, feature length film with another production company at Austin called Finn and Fur Films. The the owner and founder of that is Ben Masters, and he's known for a movie called River in the Wall and Unbranded, but just like really really powerful feature length films and we met at a film festival in Texas and he said, I'm making this film about the Colorado river, but you know, I'm really aware that like, that's not where I'm from and that's not a place that I understand well. Like we need to work with someone that knows that. And so we, we've been working on building or on filming and uh, a few sequences of that story. And it's going to be a 90 minute film or 70 or 90 minute film. And wow, yeah, it's going to be on all the streaming services and all this stuff, but it's a wildlife film and it's kind of a different flavor of wildlife film because one of the things that we're doing is we're also trying to tell the story of the people that have lived on this river for quite a long time. And so we spent a month in the bears ears area doing a bunch of filming there. And yeah, it's been really awesome. But you know, that's kind of one of the, I think to your point of like the education piece, um, but also trying to figure out how do we pay the bills. And it's great when you have a film that's funded by a billionaire. They're like, <laughs> that is nice because, wow, well, what I'm learning right now is like, cause I'm trying to figure out like maybe stepping into the producing side of getting into film. Like I haven't done any like film work myself, but like the baseline numbers for some projects are pretty big. And like for like 10 minute films, that budget can, is sometimes well, at least like I knew that there was a, a lot that went into that, especially for like post-production product prices and mm -hmm. stuff. But I was like, oh my God, you're talking like tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars sometimes for just like something that's under 20 minutes long. So for a 90 minute film, A, that's like really exciting and insane because that's like a whole project. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of funding that has to go into that. So were you like on location for the entire month in um, mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, yeah. what is that like? And like, what was the hardest, what was the hardest challenge of that? Oh yeah. Um, so we were in around Southern Utah and, um, gosh, when did we even get there? I, we had a, we had a, uh, a permit to float the San Juan river from bluff to Mexican hat, which is like this 30 mile stretch of river. And we said, we're just going to start it off with a bang. We're going to go float this thing. And 
um, yeah, that was that was phenomenal. I think that's great for just team building. It's just like spending a you know extended times on the river away from cell service. Um, but it was really grounding, and it was really good to get to know Ben a little bit better. And so we started off there. But you know, that's a it's a it's it's Red Rock Desert uh, and high yeah it's like six five to seven five to eight thousand feet kind of in that region five to nine thousand feet i guess um but you know it goes from uh desert bottoms to pine forests up by the bears ears proper and um you know one of the one of the parts of that story is that we're trying to tell the story of wildlife through the ancestral sites that are there like there's so the bears ears is about 1.35 million acres i don't remember the exact number but massive swath of land um but there's uh like in that designation there's a hundred thousand known archaeological sites to it dating back like to twenty thousand years wow some of them but it's more there's more archaeological sites there than all of the other national park units combined it's it's insane um so you can you can just kind of walk into these canyons and these places and you'll just kind of stumble upon stuff and we didn't just do that you know i <laughs> but i i like kind of knew the greatest hits and the things that were there and um we applied for a permit which you got to do for filming if you ever want to get into this but we went yeah through that that's another process. thing too <laughs> yeah we talked to the intertribal coalition the the tribes that are managing it have this group called the beersers intertribal coalition and you know just really building that buy-in and getting them involved in the process and making sure that they felt good with it the the we ended up doing a lot of filming at a bunch of these sites and some of these panels and rock art. There's rock art panels that depict a bunch of wildlife and um, crazy stuff from the past. You know, like there's a there's a supernova that happened in like 1051 or something. And like there is a documentation of that on on one of the panels. And I had just That's learned so that in cool. doing the research. Yeah. And it was just like, whoa, to see that in person, it was pretty crazy. Um but you know, it's like how do you how do you bring these places to life? Because I think one of the things in talking about native peoples is that it's so easy to couch us and our history as in the past. Yep. And that, you know, these things don't exist in the present. And so what that's been our challenge is, you know, especially with wildlife and like talking about its relation wildlife's relationship to people and why that matters, that's been really awesome. And I think to to share this place with you know, a couple folks that had never spent any time in this part of the world for them to, um, yeah, it, it was to see it was, uh, yeah, I think it kind of blew their mind. And one of the guys was just like really anxious to try to film everything and get everything, you know, dialed, you know, having everything planned. I was like, you know, when you're out here, like some things will work out, some things won't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think it, initially, I think it was coming into it that he kind of had, I came, came to the sense that he didn't really realize the scale of how many sites were out here and how many options were available. And I think to like see the world through his lens as a first time filmer in this place was really cool because I kind of forget like, um, how expansive this place is and how many things there are to see there. And like, as the days went on, he's like, yeah, yeah, it'll work out. There's like, we got this option. We got this option. We got this option. It's just like, you know, there's, it was cool to see. Cause like, you know, it, I think that sort of scale of what's happening out there was really cool. And so we, we got to 
yeah, spent a lot of time out there and it was, it was phenomenal. And, um, I, yeah, I couldn't, I mean, it was very, uh, there was no hiccups or anything major. I, I got like an inch thorn in my foot on the river, but that was about it. Oh my God. That is so lucky too. Like for how much time you spent out there, yeah. like, and like, especially, yeah. yeah, like desert and like, there's, there's a 10,000 things that could have gone wrong. That's insane. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. And yeah, if, if folks want to visit, you know, make the time, but also just like learn about there, there's an entire ethic about being around archeological sites that goes beyond leave no trace and that sort of thing. So be sure to like, look into that, you know, before you go and visit, you know, don't basically keep your distance. Don't mess with them, like go view them. Great. Um, but yeah, that's about it. But yeah, highly recommend, um, going and visiting these places responsibly. I haven't spent any time in that area, but um, I'm a big archaeological nerd. And also that just sounds like, first it sounds breathtaking. And that's just, that's insane how many sites are there. Like that is so powerful and like a lot of different levels. So that's incredible. I'm glad yeah. that you guys got to go out there. I'm really excited. I'm excited to see that come together. So when like... You guys have already been filming it, but is this like years out for like production finish complete or do you guys have a timeline for that? Yeah, like at least a year, a minimum a year from now <laughs> of like even seeing a rough cut. Our, our hope is to have it done pretty soon because the story, the story is a story about the Colorado River told through the lens of wildlife. And for folks that have been following, you know, the Colorado river has been seeing like basically has been in a, the Colorado river basin has been in a drought for the past 20 years. And the only other scale of drought that we've seen this series was 800 years ago. And the last time that that happened, it caused the collapse of, yeah, I wouldn't say cause, but it was a major factor in the collapse of civilizations. And, um, you know, it was, it's massive. And, 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 the river is overstretched, you know, it's, there's more water being taken out of it than there is water in the river. And, and we have to figure out what to do because that's not sustainable. And so massive negotiations happening among the different states on the river and the federal government's getting involved. And, you know, it's kind of the right place, right time for this film. And, and I think really our hope is to help in that process, you know, I think in allocating water from the river, we tend to forget that there's also plants and animals that really depend on this as well. And we have a duty and obligation to take care of them as well. So, um, you know, and that's, you know, amidst our climate crisis, we also have a biodiversity crisis and that definitely taps into that. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I, I can't wait to see it. That just sounds so exciting. And yeah, it sounds like it's the right time for that, especially coming up in, you know, upcoming elections and even like big ones and then midterms, et cetera. There's going to be, those stories are important for us to all see and hear and understand like why it's so critical to save these spaces and these waters. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Well, kind of wrapping up on this this has been so much fun um but i always ask every guest on the podcast too um about what you think your biggest misconception about what you do is oh my god <laughs> uh i think it depends on the audience i think okay. the people that follow the snore that follow the snore and avalanche center might not realize that like 
I actually have a, I do have a job and there's things that I do outside of making really dumb content for the internet. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think the other, I think the other big one is that like, I, uh, I think in making so many jokes on the internet, cause it just, it's like a empty vacuum and a void meant to be filled by nonsense. Otherwise it'll be conspiracy theories and whatever the fuck else is on the internet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The get ready with me videos on TikTok, whatever, like, you know, just these dumb, va- like it, it's stupid things. Um, I think like that. I also don't, like people know I have a PhD, but don't know what that means. And like also like kind of don't know how to interact with me, given that they know me from just being dumb on the internet, that I actually have an analytical brain as well. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I would just, yeah, I don't know. I would say those are the biggest, like more recent ones for sure. Yeah. I was going to say, if you ever feel compelled, you should check out Len's website because like his name has been on so many different like articles like very well written things and then also just like yeah you put your PhD to work a lot and it's just like it's amazing to see how many places you've been able to like put your name and your word and your say on and it's pretty spectacular you're also funny as all hell but I did spend time with you in DC too and it was fun to to see you out there too when I was in a space that I was totally nervous in and it's terrifying out there as all hell um it was nice that you were on my team because I was like okay cool Lent's been here before and like he's kind of funny so that makes me feel like a little less nervous about coming into these meetings so I, I know I kind of forget like how yeah from when we were when we were in DC how serious those meetings can feel yeah um, but also how, how how not like they're not like that consequential no uh, yeah so it's it-, <laughs> it like it sparked a bug in me so desperately that I was like because yeah I was literally like pitted so hard just like sweating so much it's also just already muggy as all hell but i'm like so nervous going into these meetings and then some of them are like five minutes long and you come out and you're like what what just happened like i think something happened there but i don't know exactly what did like it was i don't know um I want to go back and I want to see more of it and I want to see more of the other of the other sides of how those conversations can go. I know they can be not as nice and fun as some of ours were. They they can be really contentious, but I you know honestly, if I could create the Sonoran Avalanche Center five hundred one C four, like the the pack the super sack pack. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Please create a sack pack. I know, just to create the most chaotic media like ever on on voting. I mean, that's that's the way. But <laughs> I got to put it on the list of things to do because yeah. that's a big one. Oh my god! No, I would love that. My job was just dropped. That was why the audio was gapped because yeah, that would be um, so epic, and I would love that, and I would <laughs> love to see that um, in DC too. It would be incredible. Um, to watch people just be so a little confused about that. <laughs> I I just I just found an article about how to start a pack. So okay, <laughs> I can't wait. Um, y- you should keep me in the loop in that because uh, yeah, I would so be interested in being part of the sack pack. Get it going. It's gonna happen. <laughs> It'll happen. It'll oh, happen. Man. How 
Pow really won't know what to do with me. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. You're being a disruptor. You're being a positive disruptor. I know, totally. I they have that grant application that's open now. Yeah, and I was like, I, it's like I don't know what I apply, and I guess it's like maybe I just ask them for money to start a political action committee. Maybe <laughs> I mean I don't know. I could see, I could see some potential in there. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm working on some grant projects right now too, which is like a first time kind of ever for me. So I'm like nervous and excited about it, but we'll see how that goes. Yeah. It'll, it'll go well. It'll you, go you well. You have the talent. It's going to go great. So Everything's yeah. fine. Yeah, you just you just stumble your way into things and you figure it out on the way. But I'm looking forward to it. Um, well, Len, you're awesome. Thank you so much for talking to me. It's been such a pleasure. Um, I look forward to the next time I run into you in person, which is hopefully totally. soon. Hopefully before the summit. Hopefully you're coming to the summit. And hopefully if not I'm coming before. to the summit, yeah. Okay, cool. I'm going to try to drive this into an avalanche center car just to like fully, oh, but I don't do. know. It's a long drive. It is, but <laughs> oh so. man, the effort would be incredible. It would be, yes. Fingers crossed. Well, be, because it's a Fiat, right? You got a Fiat. It, it, it's in a Barth, 500 of Barth. So it's really fast and it's like got the really loud exhaust. It's got no muffler. It's got no muffler from the factory. So. <laughs> I'm obsessed. Oh my God. It's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, please try and get that out. <laughs> awesome. I just need to have it shipped places. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, exactly. Just bring it in on a flatbed. <laughs> yeah. That would be incredible. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And um, yeah. yeah, I look forward to talking to you soon. It was a pleasure. Yeah. And that's a wrap on this week's episode. Thank you again to Len Nessifer for sitting down and talking with me. And stay tuned for the rest of the summer. We'll be dropping more Protect Our Winners sponsored series episodes. I can't wait for the next one. Thanks for listening.